Good morning, everybody. Wherever you are, I would like to welcome you to just prepare your hearts as we worship our God this morning. Let's lift our voices. You are love so great, Jesus in all things. I've seen a glimpse of your heart a billion years. Still I'll be singing. The stars in glory. Your love is like the wildest ocean. Oh, nothing can compare. Creation calls all to the Savior. We are alive for your praise in earth and sky. No one is high.
Chapel family. I'd like to welcome you this morning online on this snowy morning to worship and praise our God together. My name is Mike Bontempo. My wife, Kim, and our family have been coming to Groton Bible Chapel for about two and a half years now. So this morning, I'm, I'm going to be welcoming you this morning, as well as being part of a leadership team for an upcoming men's conference called Men of Faith. We're excited to have Men of Faith featuring an excellent teaching of Paul Tripp. And I want to personally extend an invitation to men of all ages. We're going to have a lot of information coming up over the next couple of weeks, but this morning, there's three things I, wanted, I want you to remember. First, Men of Faith will happen on Friday, February 26th at 6.30. Again, Friday, February 26th at 6.30. Second, we're gonna be streaming the event with two attendance options. We're encouraging microgroups of two to four men to gather at a home, to share some food, and to join us online at 6.30. We're also gonna be hosting men here in this room, but there won't be any food. We're really excited about this. So thirdly, there's gonna be information on the website right now. And also there'll be information coming on Facebook and on the uh, daily emails that come out, weekly emails that come out. So we're really excited about to, that we can offer this to everybody. And guys, if you wanna learn how to trust God totally and be fearless, understand how God wants to use you as his ambassador and learn how to be more effective and productive for him, then this will be a great opportunity to learn the new meaning of masculinity. We hope you can join us. Now let's continue to worship together.
praise you this morning we just worship you in your name Lord God I pray that you just just talk to us Lord this morning in a new light Lord God I pray that you just prepare our eyes our ears and our hearts that we would receive your word this morning Lord God just thank you and praise you for everything you're doing so far and the many things you're going to do later Lord God in your name I pray amen I want to welcome you guys again this morning. Uh, take a few seconds, just send a text, tell somebody you love them, and prepare your hearts for the word. winter has finally arrived. Here we are and the snow is beginning to fall and beginning to accumulate. And I don't know how the winter has been for you or how you approach uh, church this morning as you come and join us today. Uh, I'm excited to report that uh, in middle age here, I'm actually in a growth spurt something I didn't anticipate. Uh, I've noted over the last several weeks that my shirts and pants are getting tighter, and so I'm excited that I'm growing. So that's, uh, that's one thing to be excited about, I guess. Um, but in all seriousness, I wonder this morning, how do you come to church today? What, what do you bring? What are you carrying? What's on your mind and your heart? Uh, really come to this morning, to this service, and we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. I'll be really honest with a, with a heavy heart. This morning, a heavy heart for our congregation, for what I think is a time as we hear from God's word this morning, where we need to hear with a response of repentance for some things going on in our own lives. And I'll certainly uh, draw those things to myself, but I want to share with you a scripture uh, that Paul quotes here in Galatians, or that Paul says in Galatians, he says this, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, 
love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul here is uh, quoting Leviticus 19.18. And he goes on and he says this, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I have been burdened this week. I wasn't even sure how to start this sermon without it being sort of a Debbie Downer. That I've been burdened this week just knowing that there are those within the body of Christ, certainly around the country, but being focused and being uh, commissioned and called to care for this body that have torn each other down. In some cases, that's been online. In some cases, that's been face-to-face. That I have had times where I have thought just really unkind, hurtful things, or even begun to type a text message response or a social media post that I've not sent, but my heart was not in the right place. So the message I bring to you this morning, entitled Judas and Me, the Lord has been working on me first. You see, I think there are some things, believe it or not, that we can learn from the life of Judas Iscariot as we're in John's gospel this morning. John's gospel today, where we are at this morning, is a message and a passage that is about actions have consequences. Actions have consequences, and Jesus, as we'll see, is game for the consequences of others' actions. And he begins to tell his disciples of what's to come. And he begins with this idea of this this thing that will distinguish his people, his disciples, his little band of followers from their, their contemporaries. It's something that will change the world. It's love. It's love. It's a love that Jesus will demonstrate in going to Calvary's cross. It's a love that he will replicate as he raises from the dead, as he sends the gift of his Holy Spirit He will replicate this in the lives of each of his disciples all the way down to the lives of you and me as we trust in him and as he transforms our hearts one by one. So again, this morning's message is a little bit heavy. But dare we come to the the word of God with anything but an attitude to receive whatever it is that he has for us. So let me pray and then we're going to look at John chapter 13. Lord God, you know this morning, this is a message I don't want to preach on a certain level. Lord, it's a, it's a message that is heavy and difficult and challenging. It's an exhortation and a rebuke in some ways. And Lord, I, I certainly don't want to be a Debbie Downer. Lord, we need, we need the hope, the hope, the hope of the gospel, Lord. The hope of what you have done for us in spite of us. What you have done for me in spite of me. And so, Lord, would you allow your word to be clear as it is spoken today? Would you minister to our hearts? Would you encourage those who've been wounded and hurt by even their brothers and sisters in Christ this morning? Would you bring into repentance and forgiveness those who have been the perpetrators of saying and doing harsh and unkind things to their brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The context of our passage is, after all, betrayal. We're going to begin in John 13, verse 21. And last week, Pastor Zach was in the beginning of the chapter, and he talked about uh, the foot washing, that Jesus, he lays aside his garment, he puts on this towel, he takes the form of the ultimate servant, and he washes his disciples' feet. And then he tells them, quoting from Psalm 41, that one of them is going to betray him. And we pick the text up here. In verse 21, John says this, he says, When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And so Jesus told him, what you are doing, do quickly. None of those who were reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. And after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. It was night. Now, I want to begin this morning in the room. 
in the room with the disciples, in the upper room, gathered together with them. You see, I think that John wants to draw you and me into the room. We believe that the disciple Jesus loved here is John the Apostle. And we believe that because John, the author, writes from an eyewitness point of view. But later in John 19 and John 20, John intimates the idea that the disciple Jesus loves is also the author and is John himself. It's his signature, if you will. And so John, if we accept that this morning, at least uh, as, we, as we look at this gospel, John being in the room, he is drawing us into the room. John wants us to feel what it's like to be there. If Jesus is gathered, as we assume, with his 12 disciples, then we are, as it were, the 14th person in the room. And, Jesus and, and Jesus, uh, John invites us to smell the Paschal meal that is set before them. He invites us to see the anguish on Jesus' face as he tells them, one of you is going to betray me. He invites us to uh, sense the relational dynamic as Peter hints to his good friend John to ask Jesus who it is. He invites us to feel the tension and the awkwardness in the room as the disciples are sort of verbally, quietly wondering, who is he talking about? What is he talking about? John wants us to be there. That's why he writes this, of this event the way that he does. Why? John says, Again, we've talked about this several times. If you're new with us, John's thesis statement, he says, the reason I write these things, the reason I describe this event the way that I do, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you might have life, eternal life in his name. So John writes, he invites us into the room, again, that we would, might have another picture of who Jesus is, that we might believe in him with saving faith that he would be our savior and we would receive eternal life. So he invites us in the room. Now, I want to show this picture, probably the most famous painting from the Renaissance, uh, from Renaissance art. It is Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Uh, it's a profound painting. As you spend time looking at it, you notice more and more. It's an amazing work of art. But I have to tell you that, that the arrangement and the posture in this painting is actually wholly inaccurate. We know now, as da Vinci wouldn't have known at the time, that the disciples are gathered around what was probably about a six or eight or ten inch high table, a low table, and that this communal meal is served on this table. And in a meal like this, that the disciples are gathered and they're actually reclining on couches or cushions of a sort, and they're reclining on their left side and reaching and eating with their hands, uh, with their right hand, and eating together and fellowshipping together. It is a communal meal. It is, as John Piper described it, it's as if the table is the, the center of a flower and the disciples are arranged as petals outside or, or perhaps the hub of a wheel. And you could liken the disciples' arrangement to spokes. And understanding the, the historical context helps us understand how this conversation unfolds. And Jesus says again with great anguish that one of you is going to betray me. Zach talked last week about the brashness of Peter. I love Peter. Peter's the man of action. He sees the anguish on Jesus' face. He feels the awkwardness in the room. He's the first one to kind of fill that awkwardness with his voice, and, uh, or at least in this case with his, his motion, his action. And so he motions to his friend John, who's probably a couple of seats away from him, maybe across the way, and he's like, John, find out who it is. Who's he talking about? Now we know again from this arrangement that John, who's leaning on his left side, is able to lean back behind him, to, right into Jesus' breast, as it were, and say quietly, Lord, who is it? Who is it? And Jesus tells him, again, we believe that the other disciples can't hear what he says, but he says, the one to whom I give this morsel of bread after I have dipped it. And Jesus takes this hunk of bread, this unleavened bread, and he dips it into the paschal stew, as it were, and he hands it to Judas. Again, understanding the arrangement here, it's highly likely, it's not definitive, but it's highly likely that Judas is sitting immediately to Jesus' left. Immediately to Jesus' left. This would have been the seat of honor. And that Judas is seated to Jesus' left, again, sort of being in the room with them here, that Jesus is honoring him by giving him the first morsel of the meal. 
But I believe it's more than that. That Jesus is extending him toward sort of this last opportunity of grace, this last opportunity for Judas to repent from what he's about to do. That Jesus, as it were, is, is hoping or, or uh, desiring that Judas would receive this morsel. And as he sees Jesus' face, as he receives this morsel, that he might say in and of himself, and it would come out of him and to say, Oh, Lord, forgive me for what I was, I was about to do. Thank you for being so gracious to me. I can't believe where I almost went. Lord, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And Judas doesn't do that. Judas takes the bread, he eats it. And the text says, and Satan entered into him, the adversary, the evil one. Jesus says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves. And then John says, and it was night. It was Night. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar if you've been with us for any in John's gospel, any of these messages. You know that John plays games with light and dark from a theological thematic sense the entire way through. He says that light has come into the world, but that men love darkness rather than light. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus calls himself later, a few chapters later, that he is the light of the world, that men might believe in him and come from darkness to light. And so John says, and it was night. And he's speaking on multiple levels here. It's as if Judas, who refuses this last opportunity of grace, has uh, fully chosen to step out of the fellowship of Jesus as he leaves the room and steps into utter darkness. That he steps and is enveloped and surrounded by the darkness of his own decision to his soul's despair. But it's also night because Judas's action, his leaving the fellowship of Christ, sets in motion the events that will lead to the darkest moment in human history, the crucifixion of God incarnate. It was night. You know, as we look at the life of Judas, our message is entitled Judas and Me. I've been thinking about what is it that I have to learn from the life of Judas? There's a lesson to you this morning if you have uh, been coming to church for a while, if you've been hanging out with Christians for a while, if you sing Christian songs and you swim in Christian circles, but you are not yourself a Christian, if you have never repented of your sins and received what Christ has done on your behalf into your life, believed in him, don't be a Judas who fellowships with the people of God and yet doesn't know Christ. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. But as we learn for ourselves, as, as I think about how can I apply something to learn from the life of Jesus, I want to step away from our immediate text and look at a greater kind of quick survey of five things I think we can remember or remind ourselves and learn about Judas. So first, Jesus loved Judas. Jesus chose Judas. Jesus loved Judas. Just a few verses ago, the beginning of this chapter, Jesus quoted Psalm 41.9. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate bread with me, has raised up his heel against me. Jesus says, even my friend in whom I trusted has raised up his heel against me. John 13.1, uh, the scripture says, as, Jesus is as John is referring to all of Jesus' disciples gathered in the upper room, he says, having loved his own. Speaking of all of them. Zach made the huge point last week, verse uh, 12 of chapter 13, that Jesus washes their feet, all of their feet. Jesus washes Judas's feet. And finally, we have the verse we open with this morning, that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. The idea here is that he is filled with grief, anguish, disappointment, remorse, probably anger. He is deeply troubled. Because Jesus loved Judas. That brings us to the next point. Judas was unsuspected. Judas was unsuspected. It's again highly likely that Judas is sitting in the position, the seat of honor to the left of Jesus, and that everybody would have expected that. Judas was the team treasurer. He's kind of the admin, the treasurer, the one that uh, kind of keeps them in line. Judas's conduct, it's clear in front of the disciples and throughout his time with Jesus, his outward conduct is exemplary, even as his inward character is rotten. I think of times in my life when my outward conduct was exemplary, but the stuff going on inside of me was rotten. 
That's part of what's driving me this morning in this message is that I think that that can even happen to us as Christians. And I want us to deal honestly with that. I want us to learn that from the mistake of Judas. Judas is unsuspected. It says it right here in the text. Verse 28 and 29. None of those reclining at the table knew why Jesus said this to Judas. To do what you do quickly. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. Now, these two things would have been very common in association with both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so there's no suspicion. There's no, uh, no one is suspect of him as he leaves the room. And there's also a sense that the disciples had no sense of immediacy. They didn't realize that when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, that he meant right away. They thought perhaps somewhere down the road, he's talking about something that's going to happen later. Jesus loved Judas. Judas was unsuspected. But Judas made a definitive choice. In the Gospels, in uh, John chapter 12 and Matthew 26, Mark 14, we have the story of Mary. And she anoints the feet of Jesus with this expensive nard, this very costly perfume, this likely family heirloom, this gift that she anoints Jesus with that is essentially a, a metaphor for her saying, I am giving you all of me, everything that I have, the most costly thing that I own, I am giving to Jesus and I am anointing him. And, and Zach helped us understand this back in the springtime. What she's doing by saying this is that Jesus is worthy of me giving everything I've got. Well, here's what's fascinating in that account. That Judas is the one who responds to this event by saying, hey, wait a minute. That, the money from that could have been used, sold, it could have been sold and given to the poor. Now, John tells us in an editorial way here, in his gospel, he says, Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas actually used to steal. He was a thief. He stole from the money bag. Judas cared about money. Well, here's what's really interesting. Mary, again, she gives of herself. She gives everything she has. Judas witnesses this. He goes out and it says that he goes to the chief priests and he says to the chief priests, what are you willing to give me if I betray him? What a contrast. Mary, who gives everything away, attributing great worth to Jesus. And Judas, who says, Jesus is not worth me giving anything. In fact, tell me what you will give me that I can betray him. Judas makes a choice. And it's really important that we're clear on that this morning, that Judas made a choice. Because Judas's betrayal was also not only prophesied, but the evil one was involved in bringing him to this point of betrayal. Verse 2 of the chapter says that Satan had already put it into the mind of Judas to betray Jesus. Verse 27 says that after he eats the morsel, that Satan, the great adversary, enters him. On some level, there's both influence and perhaps even possession here of the evil one himself. And Judas goes out and commits this terrible, terrible betrayal. You know, months later, the disciples, the eleven... Jesus has ascended to heaven. Judas is, of course, dead. And the, the disciples are choosing his replacement. Ultimately, Matthias will take his place. And I believe it's Peter that says this. He says, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. That the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In other words, the disciples came to understand later that Judas was prophesied. We looked at Psalm 41. It was prophesied that he would betray Jesus. And so we're reminded of the point we made a few weeks ago about the relationship between the hardness of the human heart and the sovereignty of God. That Pharaoh, as we use that example, hardened his heart, but that the Lord also hardened his heart. The warning to us is, of course, do not harden your heart. Reminded of that scripture in Hebrews that comes from the Psalms. Today, if you hear his voice, do not Pardon your heart. Well, the fifth and final thing is Judas, Judas's end. Jesus' epitaph over the life of Judas says this, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. 
Matthew 27 is the only account that tells us that there was any remorse on the part of Judas. That Judas, seeing that Jesus is both arrested and condemned, he runs from there, he has remorse, he throws the silver down, he goes out and he hangs himself. It's likely that Judas kind of assumed that when he betrayed Jesus, Jesus would extricate himself as he had several other times, slipping through the crowds and just sort of seemingly just kind of getting out of it. Because prior to this time, as Jesus tells us in the Gospels, it was not yet his hour. And when Jesus, uh, Judas sees Jesus arrested and condemned, he is filled with remorse. But there's an important point here. Judas expresses remorse, but he does not enact repentance. He feels a remorse that does not yield to repentance. And, and this is an important distinction. It is possible for us. It is possible for you. It's been true in my life at times to have remorse and sorrow over what I have done, but to have no repentance, to not be repentant. Certainly that is the case here with Judas. Again, a lesson to us. And the final word on Judas and his destiny comes from Acts 125. Judas left to go where he belongs. The idea here, following this idea of the place where he belongs from the Old Testament all the way through, is that Judas leaves the fellowship of Jesus in the upper room, but he leaves the fellowship of God for all eternity. That he goes to his own place, one version says. A place not of fellowship with other believers and with God himself and the angels, but a place of utter abandon and isolation and ruin and separation. A place the scripture calls hell. Judas goes to his own place. Well, short of learning the lesson that we've talked about already, not to say no to Jesus, not to reject him, not to harden our hearts to him, but to believe and to receive, what can I as a Christian learn from Judas? Well, I wonder, I think some of it comes from understanding what perhaps motivated Judas. Why did he do what he did? There are three main ideas to why Judas did what he did, and I think one is probably contextually the, the strongest. Uh, one idea is that Judas had political motivations, that Judas was either a super patriot himself, a, a nationalist, or that he was somewhat aligned with the zealots of his day, and that Judas's aim was to, to even force Jesus into his, a rebellion against the Romans, to, to really push Jesus to establish his kingdom now. And that drove him beyond the purposes of whatever Jesus had in mind, the political aims. The second, and I think this is the one that, that holds the most credence from what we know of the text and of Judas, is that Judas was greedy. That Judas was a thief, as John says in John 12, 6, that he would help himself to what was in the money bag. And that Judas assumed that as Jesus came into power, that there was going to be a payoff for him personally. And in fact, when it looked and became apparent that wasn't the case, he made sure to arrange that he would, in fact, receive some wealth on behalf of Jesus. How much will you give me to sell him out? The third idea is that Judas was after a kingdom of one. That is a kingdom of self. That he assumed that again, sort of hitching his wagon to Jesus, that there would be power and prestige. There would be a place of prominence for him. It, again, it's likely already that he had the position of honor in Jesus' band of disciples. And so he assumed that only coming into this relationship with Christ, he would have great honor, power, prestige, whatever. And so when Jesus begins to talk about dying, as Jesus says that the kingdom is not to come right now, Judas becomes quickly dis enfranchised. The reality is that Judas never believed in Jesus. Judas never calls Jesus Lord. He never even affirms it when Peter calls him Lord. Judas calls him teacher and master. He never calls Jesus Lord. For the sake of application here this morning and the things that have been weighing on my heart on behalf of, of you, our congregation this morning, I want to make three applications and I want to contrast the gospel of Jesus Christ with the motivations of Judas and ask those questions of myself. Ask those questions of you. So number one, the gospel of Jesus Christ is counter to my political agenda. 
And let me substitute the word. I probably should have used the word political activism. Christians are not called to be apolitical. The church is not called to be apolitical. I think I'm quoting Tim Keller here. The church is called to be nonpartisan. Christians should be involved in politics, particularly local politics. We should be influencing the world for good, showing what the gospel brings to bear in society and so on and so forth. But when my political activism uh, uh, supersedes the mission of the gospel, when it becomes my primary passion such that I am hurting and maligning and being unkind to and saying horrible things to other Christians, then that is wrong. And so this is a diagnostic question from the life of Judas into my life. Am I promoting the wrong platform? could ask it this way. Am I promoting the platform of the donkey? Am I promoting the platform of the elephant? Or am I promoting the platform of the lamb? Are my politics superseding that of the gospel? Secondly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is counter to my personal greed. Now you might say, I'm a generous person, I'm not greedy. But are the decisions that you make throughout life, decisions that in the macro sort of movements of your life are driven by financial security and comfort? Is your giving for the sake of the kingdom of God and just your generosity in general something that hurts your bottom line? Or is that always established with a level of security? Paraphrasing uh, the theologian Dave Ramsey, you know, we ought to be about making as much as we can so that we can give away as much as we can. And if my decisions are driven by financial gain to the detriment, abuse, or hurt of others, then I need to repent. Thirdly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is counter to my private kingdom, to my kingdom of one, my kingdom of self. And I think all of us struggle with this on some level. Am I driven by a motivation that says, look at me or look at him? Look at me or look at his people that you might see him? And do I pursue that kingdom of one at the detriment of others. Judas leaves the presence and fellowship of Jesus to the detriment of his own soul. And even though we're mostly talking about someone who didn't believe in Jesus, there are lessons for those of us that do. That we can quickly betray the cause of Christ, betray Jesus himself for these other causes. And maybe there are others as well. Well, how do, you, how do I know if that's me? How do I know if, if my political activism or my financial greed or this kingdom of one idea, my private kingdom, supersede that of the gospel in my life? Well, Jesus is about to tell us. Jesus is about to tell us. So we're back to the John text, John 13. Jesus says this, or John says this. When he had left, that is when Judas had left, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, as, Jesus, as Judas exits the scene, Jesus turns to the 11 and he begins what we know as the upper room discourses, including the high priestly prayer. And it begins, if you note, that when Judas leaves the room, Jesus' language becomes even more intimate. In some versions, it says little children or dear children. But he begins with this idea of his own glory. He says five times in two verses that he will be glorified. He says that the Father will be glorified in him, in his passion, in his messianic work. God the Father will be glorified. He says that he himself will be glorified, that God the Father will glorify his work through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus is, uh, is intimating here. And ultimately, he says, this will happen immediately. Note how these two verses uh, uh, begin and conclude. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. The Son of Man, uh, the God is glorified at once. There's an immediacy to this glory that is going to come. You see, when Judas exits the room, again, the events of Jesus' passion, the clock begins to tick into the passion of Christ himself. And Jesus knows this. And so his focus changes. He tells the disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come. He reminds them as he did the Jews, you cannot come. Why? 
Because Jesus is going to the cross. Because the Jews and the disciples and you and me, we cannot go where he went. We cannot go to the cross to pay for our own sins because we are stained with sin ourselves, both in our being and in our behavior. Jesus goes to the cross and he pays for our sins. I can't pay for anyone else's sins, much less my own. So he goes to a place where we could not go. And Jesus then says, I'm giving you a new command. This is perhaps the greatest apologetic of Christianity, this command that Jesus gives. It's the love of God for each other, or the love of God's people for each other. Now, the command that Jesus gives is not new in the sense that it's never been said. It's new in the sense that Jesus gives greater depth and a fresh uh, 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 sort of a set of teaching attached to this ancient command from Leviticus 19.18. It's where we began this morning. Love your neighbor as yourself. But in the context of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself meant love your fellow Israelite. Love your brother Jew. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus explodes this command with fresh and deep meaning. Because as Jesus goes to the cross, raises again and ascends to heaven, he will explode the nature of what it means to walk with God and to know God. We know this from Galatians. We know this from Luke chapter 10 and from other places. That the gospel opens up salvation to all people. And so Jesus gives a new command. It's a, it's a new command that is anchored and ratified in his blood. It is a new covenant that is established in the blood of Jesus. And it is only his transforming work through his shed blood that this new eclectic uh, uh, ultimately diverse group of people will be able to love each other as he is commanding them to hear. And so in fact, this begins to happen in the second century. Tertullian records the testimony of the pagans, of the, of the early Christians. They say of the early Christians, see how they love each other. See how they are ready to die for one another. Oh, that the saints here at Groton Bible Chapel, that brothers and sisters in Christ, that the world would look at our fellowship and say, see how they love each other. See how they are willing to give things up for one another. See how they are willing to gently set aside their strong opinions for the grace and the sake of one another. You see, this morning, I'm convicted that, that I need to repent for times that I've thought things that were just unkind, ruthless in some ways. Maybe even began to type that text message. But I think our church body needs to repent. And it's repentance and the Lord's Supper that are tied together as John nears the end of this little section of Jesus' discourse here. Jesus says this. He says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm going to invite the band up at this time as we prepare to take communion together. Jesus says that it is the love of his people. It is the love of his people that will identify them as, as his disciples. Love for one another. You know, the Greek word that we translate one another is used 100 times in 94 New Testament verses, and 47 of those times are instructions to the church for how to behave, how to do church to us. And you know, not one time does it say, tear down one another for the sake of a political cause, or abuse one another for the sake of, uh, of a business advantage or financial gain, or malign one another for the sake of your own little kingdom to make yourself feel better. And Jesus says, love one another. You know, John writes another letter later where he basically reflects on this command and expounds on it. It's the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. I encourage you to read it. We studied it just a couple weeks ago as a church. John says this in 1 John 4.20. These are hard words as we prepare to take Christ's body and his blood. John says this, if anyone, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother and sister, he or she is a liar. How can you love someone 
who is unseen if you cannot even love someone who is seen? John says. That brings us to the cross of Christ. You know, John is the only gospel writer who does not include the institution of the Lord's Supper in his narrative. And scholars debate about where that, if you look at the other gospels, where that fits chronologically with what we're reading. I think it's possible, it's very likely, that it could go right here. That John could say, from the mouth of Jesus, in this way everyone will know that you are my disciples if you will love one another. And therefore I'm going to show you the greatest demonstration of love. And then he takes bread and he breaks it. And he gives it to them and says, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that show us what love is. Where's the hope in this message? It's in the table. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, as the band leads us in this song, to in a reflexive way approach the Lord's table this morning. His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. And do business with him. Repent of those things that you know you need to repent of. Thank him for his forgiveness. And then we'll come back together in a few moments after you've had that time. And we'll take the body and the blood together.
in Christ as your Savior. If you have believed and received what Christ has done and who he is in your life, and you are his, then we're going to take this bread. I'm going to give thanks for it. We're going to take it together. But if you say this morning, you know what? I'm kind of like Judas. I'm sitting amongst the table, but I'm not there. Won't you believe and trust in him this morning? Don't leave. Don't shut your computer off or your phone off or leave your living room without having received and believed in Jesus this morning. And if you don't know what that means, you can reach out to us by email or in the chat. And we'd love to talk more with you. For those of you that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm gonna give thanks for this bread. Lord God, Jesus, we thank you that you were the light of the world and the bread of life. Jesus, that you gave your life for us, that you took that bread that night, you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we do this to take our eyes off ourselves, to remember that no matter what we have done, we are forgiven and free because you are a loving Savior. And so, Lord, we do this in obedience and in remembrance for what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take Christ's body together. We said earlier that Christ's new covenant was ratified and established in his blood. And so this little cup, whatever you have gathered at home for your cup, is symbolic of his blood shed for us. It reminds us of the great cost of our salvation. So I'm going to give thanks for the cup as well. We'll take it together. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you went all the way to that hill, to that mount, to that mountain, Lord, that you went to the cross, that you shed your blood there. And when you shed your blood, Jesus, that all of the sacrifices of blood and uh, bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons and all the rest, it, it ceased because your sacrifice was one time for all sins. Your, your perfection meant that it only needed to happen once. So Jesus, in a similar way, we are just being obedient to what you have instructed us to do, that you would Remind us that we would be reminded in this moment of your great love for us through your shed blood on the cross. So we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take his blood together. Good morning. As we prepare to uh, say a prayer for the offering, um, I just want to make you guys aware of different ways that you can give. Uh, there's no one in the house, so I will skip over the uh, giving box out in the foyer. Um, but you can text to give with the number that's on your screen. And you can also give online at grantbiblechapel.org forward slash giving. Let's, uh, let's say a prayer for the offering. Lord, we thank you for your son. And we thank you for his sacrifice for us. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you bestow upon us every day. We know that everything comes from you and everything belongs to you. So as we give this offering to you, may you use it for your glory. May you multiply it and may it be used to bring others close to you. May we always remember your blessings and forever be thankful for all you've given us. Lord, bless this offering and may it be used as you see fit. In your son's name, amen. Hey, we're so glad that you've been with us this morning. You know, it's been almost a year since we were all online and we're grateful to just have you be together with us. We wanna welcome you, particularly if this is your first time joining online with Groton Bible Chapel, invite you as you're comfortable next week to come in person, but also invite you to click the I'm new button on our website. You get to connect it to us, and get to know us. 
Even this morning, we began our first welcome aboard and we're virtual today at a 1045 service, but welcome aboard has begun and we will continue that in person next week. And we hope that you'll be able to join us. We're excited to be back together. Enjoy the snow today. Have some fun. Be together as a family. Connect with others, whether it be over the, over the web or over a snowball fight. Have a great day and we will see you next week. God bless.